Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that we have this precious gift before us, the very words of the living God. Lord, we thank you for what you have told us about what you did for Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, what you did for your servant David, what you did with your servant Moses, what you did with your servants, the prophets. But Lord, we thank you so much for telling us about your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this passage that we've been looking at for a number of weeks now that shows us so much about who he is and what he has done. Lord, we pray that we may sit under your word again today and may you renew in our minds how special Jesus Christ is, how wonderful he is, and may we be able to exalt his name in our hearts even further than we've exalted him in the past. May we be growing in godliness today as we learn more and more about your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, what is your job? What is your job? What is your job description? Maybe you've got paid employment with a very precise job description. Maybe you've got paid employment with a very imprecise job description. You're able to make up what you want to do each day and you're still paid uh, to do that. I, for one, I think am partly in that position. I, there are a number of things that you expect me to do. I'm expected to preach. I'm expected to lead Bible studies. But you don't tell me what I'm supposed to preach on. Well, you do t- tell me to preach on the Bible. Uh, but uh, you don't tell me what parts of the book to, uh, to, to preach upon. You don't tell me what parts of the book to do Bible studies on. And I have freedom in what I want to read. So there's a, a certain flexibility that I enjoy in my job description. And that may be the case for you. You may have unpaid work with a very precise job description as to what you are to do. I think that's the case for uh, the homemakers, mothers. Uh, it's very precise as to what you're supposed to do. You're meant to look after the kids. You're meant to get up and, and make sure the, the house is, um, is clean and, and do all those duties that are a part of making the home. And there's a very precise job description that's involved there, but it's unpaid. Um, and so it's one of those jobs where it's precise in what you're supposed to do, but unpaid. And then you may have an unpaid job description that isn't very precise. And for some of you, that um, generally can mean retirement or can mean that you've got an illness. And basically, your job is trying to get through each day. And you're trying to um, use your time as wisely as possible, but you're unpaid for what you, what you do. You all have a job to do. We all got something to do in this life. We aren't called to be lazy, to be slack, and to sit on, the, on our rear ends on the couch and watch TV all day. That's not a job description. We all have something to do. But what's the job of angels? We all have a job to do. What is the job of angels? That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at jobs, and we're firstly going to look at the job of angels, then we're going to look at the job of Jesus, and then we're going to look at your job in a broad sense. Because we've been looking at this passage from Hebrews chapter 1 for a number of weeks now, and we've been looking at how it exalts Jesus over angels, and it's done that again and again and again. And today, we're going to see how Jesus is superior to angels because of the job that he does. Because that's what I think the, he- the author of Hebrews is telling us now. He's comparing the job of angels to the job of Jesus. And so we're going to be specifically looking at verses 7 
8 and 9 of Hebrews chapter 1. So if you've got a black church Bible, that's on page 1184, and I encourage you to have that open before you. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7, 8 and 9, and the first thing we're going to look at is what is the job of angels? Well, a clue to knowing what your job is is, of course, your job title. And so what's the title? What's the description, the job description, the job title given to these angels here? It says in verse 7, In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. Two names for these angels. One is that they're called angels. Well, what does it mean to be an angel? Does the word angel have any meaning whatsoever? Or is it kind of like calling me Joel and you don't really care about the meaning? Now, the word angel means messenger. And so at different points in the New Testament, it's translated as messenger, going on the context, and then it's translated as angel. We've taken it over into the English language, and so we have the name angel there, but it really means messenger. So what do angels do as messengers? Well, they bring messages from God. That's their job function. They, they come from God. They're in the presence of God. God says, I've got a message for the people uh, or for a particular person. The angel takes off and delivers the message. So what's the job of angels? To deliver messages. What's the other thing? How's it described in there? He makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. They're servants. What's a servant do? Well, it carries out orders. You can't be a servant without a boss. So it means that they're under someone and that they're being told to do something. They're told to serve. What do angels do for God? Well, one of the main things that they tend to do in the Old Testament is that they um, don't just bring messages. They bring uh, acts of violence on, on people and they destroy towns or they um, destroy people. Uh, they're scary beings. And so that's one of their functions is to uh, protect God's people and to look after them but also to take vengeance out on people. Uh, they've got a, a strong arm that they can uh, put upon people. That's one of their jobs as a servant. So they're messengers and they're servants. They do other actions besides deliver messages. Now, how do they do their job? We've got the title that they're servants. We've got the title that they're angels, which means they're messengers. How do they do their job? How are they described when they go about their job? What does it say, verse 7? He makes his angels winds. What does wind imply? Well, winds can mean power. Kind of a scary cyclone, hurricane, uh, twister can mean great power. But generally speaking, people have said that this means that angels are quick. You know, you're like the wind. You move like the wind means you're very quick. And so they go about their job very quickly, very efficiently. So as messengers, when they are told to deliver a message somewhere, they don't dilly dally and get sidetracked at the shop somewhere and, you know, they, they go straight to the person and they move very quickly. They're communication experts. They put Telstra to shame, don't they? They can go faster. They can communicate much faster than that. They like the wind. They're that quick. So, they're messengers, they're servants. They move like the wind. What else does it say about them? He makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. They're like fire when they do their job. Now, what does that mean? Well, it can mean that they look like fire. The seraphim, burning creatures around the throne of God. Angels, when they come along, often they can look ordinary and people don't really realize that they're angels. But sometimes they're in dazzling white and they look like they're on fire. So that could be part of what the writer of Hebrews is getting at here. But as I said before, what do they do as servants? They often bring judgment down on people. 
And one of the ways they do that is with fire, fire power. And so traditionally, winds has represented speed and fire has represented power. And so they're not just quick, they come with immense firepower. And we see that with Sodom and Gomorrah, where those two wicked towns in Genesis have burning sulfur rain down upon them and completely destroy them. They come with great firepower. So angels, they have a pretty decent job, don't they? It's a job where some of us, I think more probably the men of the room, would think, decent job. We get to go with firepower and we get to go like the wind and uh, and it would be a pretty decent job to do. But what about compared to Jesus? They've got a good job, but compared to Jesus, how good is their job? For that we need to know what is the job of Jesus. And the author of Hebrews compares Jesus in the next verses. He states out what angels are, uh, are, but then it says, but, in verse 8, about the Son, he says, and the first thing we're going to look for is, what's the job title of Jesus? The job title of angels was that they're angels and that they're servants. What's the job title of Jesus? Your throne, O God. What's the title of Jesus? God. He is called God here in the text. What's the job of Jesus? To be God. Now, some people have a big problem with this verse. They don't like that it says, O God, there. And so some of them look at this and they look at the translation and they go back to the Greek and they say, Ah, but another possible translation is, Your throne is God. And that's possible in the Greek, that it says that God is the throne of Jesus. But if you go back to the psalm that it's quoted from, and you look at the Hebrew, it's not possible in the Hebrew to say that the throne is God there. So it's possible in the Greek here in the New Testament, but if you go back to the original Hebrew, it's not possible there. And the other thing you've got to think about that is, what does it mean that God is Jesus' throne? It's a strange statement that we don't find anywhere else in the Bible, that God is the throne of Jesus. And it implies that Jesus sits on God. A throne is a chair, and you sit on the chair. And that's a terrible thing to say about God the Father, that Jesus sits on him. Yes, he has placed all things under Jesus' feet. But Paul says, but that does not mean God himself is placed under Jesus' feet. God is God. He is the superior one. In the Trinity, we have an economic Trinity where there is subordination that goes on. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is less God than the Father or that the Spirit is less God than the Father or Jesus, but there is a role that they play, and the Father is above Jesus. Jesus submits to the Father. He submits to his will. And to say that the throne is God clashes with what is said throughout Scripture about the relationship of God and Jesus. So I think the NIV is completely correct there. And most English translations translate it this way. It's translations like the New World Translation, the Jehovah's Witness Translation, that put it as your throne is God. And they've just got a problem with God, with Jesus being God in general. And so they go along to all the texts and modify them slightly. What's Jesus' job description? What's his job title? To be God. He is God. And what does he do as God? 
Is he a God that's removed from the world? No. What does it say? Your throne, O God. He's on a throne, which means he's ruling. To be on a throne means you're in charge. You're the boss. You're the one in the director's chair telling the angels what's to happen. You're the one calling the shots. He's a ruling God. What else do we learn about him? Is he just a God that rules? No, it says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. His rule is different from the rule of every other ruler ever to exist. His rule goes on forever and ever. Yes, we have a prime minister in government at the moment. And we have over in the United States, there's a president there. And they do sit in the good chair. But does their chair, does their throne last forever and ever? No. The weakness of every king, every person who reigns over people is that their chair doesn't last forever and ever. Whereas the ruler, known as Jesus, known as God, his throne is forever and ever. Is that the only thing that we learn about how Jesus does his job? His job description is that he rules, that he rules forever. What else? He rules with righteousness. He doesn't just rule with, with forever and with great power. He rules with righteousness. What does it say there in the text? Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. He is the one with power. He's the one with the stick. He's the one with the scepter. The one with the scepter is the one who is in charge. The scepter in, uh, in the Old Testament and uh, throughout uh, periods of, of history has been the representation that you're in charge and it indicates whether you're uh, favourable towards someone or unfavourable to them. You look at Esther in the book of Esther, Xerxes is there, and what's Esther concerned about? If she walks into the king's presence unannounced, she could die unless the king extends the scepter to her, and then she's safe. And so Jesus has the scepter, and so when he decides things, it's with great power, and it's kind of like a, a judge's gavel as well means it's final, that this is the decision or a call for order, call for silence. Jesus is the one in charge. He's the one with the stick. He's the one with the scepter. And he uses that not for wickedness but for righteousness. His job description is to rule, rule forever, but rule with righteousness. Why does he rule with righteousness? Is it just part of his job description and so he has to do it? Now, what does it say later in the text there? Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. He rules with righteousness, not just because it's his job, but because he loves to do it. He loves to do righteousness and hate wickedness. We all struggle with our jobs at different times where we don't particularly enjoy them. And some of you may not enjoy your jobs <laughs> at all. Um, it may be that you just go there week by week and you just do it because you want to get paid. But for some of us, we are blessed in that God gives us enjoyment in our job. But that enjoyment can fluctuate. There can be times where we enjoy being at work and then there are times where we, uh, we don't enjoy being at work. 
What about Jesus in his job? He loves to do what he does. And he loves to do what he does with righteousness. He rules with righteousness because he loves righteousness. That is such an amazing truth that God, the one with all the power, is not an unjust God. It could have been the case that the God who made everything was a wicked, horrible, mean God. But he's not. He's one who rules with righteousness because he loves to do so and he hates wickedness. That's so reassuring for us to know. And how far does his righteousness go? Well, it goes right up to the cross. At the cross, we see how far God will go to be a just and righteous God. Where's righteousness displayed at the cross? Well, some religions will teach that God, the God that they worship, can forgive without the cross. That he can just say, it's all right, you can go on your way, it's okay, I'm a merciful God. And yes, that God may be merciful, that they're talking about, but it's not a just God who lets people off the hook without punishment. Justice means there must be punishment for wickedness. And our God is both a, both a merciful God but also a righteous and just God so far that when he lets off one person, he makes sure the punishment is met and that is met at the cross. You can have a merciful God without the cross, but you've got an unjust God who's letting people go unpunished. But the God of the Bible, he's a merciful God and he's a just God because he makes sure that punishment is met in those he forgives and he meets it in himself. He was so righteous that he went to the cross to die so that people would be able to go free, but that punishment was met and met in him. He is such a righteous God and such a loving God. At the cross, remember that there's two things, two attributes of God displayed so wonderfully, his love and his justice. So many other religions, they have a loving God, but they don't have a just God. We have a just and loving God. He is a God who rules with righteousness. Is there anything else there? Anything else about his job, about how he rules? There's one last thing. It says in verse 9, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He's anointed with oil. That's how he rules. He's anointed with oil of joy. Now, some people think whenever they see the word anoint there and oil, they think that this refers to Jesus as a Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one. The word Messiah comes from the Hebrew word for anoint. And yes, that's true. Prophets, priests and kings were anointed with oil for a particular task. But I don't think that's what that's talking about here. Because it says that it's a particular oil, oil of joy. And oil is associated with joy. In the Old Testament, it talks about oil being a joy, a, a gladness. To have oil um, on your head is a, a joy. You think of um, Psalm 23, anoint my head with oil. And that's not saying I want to be a prophet, I want to be a priest, or I want to be a king. It's saying I want blessing, I want the joy. And we do associate oil with joy, don't we? It's at the top of the food pyramid, isn't it? They're with fats. 
And so it means it's the top thing, isn't it? It's the best thing. It's the best part of the food pyramid. Oil is wonderful. It tastes great. It cleanses, doesn't it? We pump oil, and if you've got hard skin, you put moisturiser on and you smooth things up. We pump it into our heads with um, what is it? moisturiser. I didn't use moisturiser for many years as a teen because I thought, oh, that's a very feminine thing to do. But these days, yes, I put moisturiser in my hair. I put oil in my hair because it makes, uh, it makes the hair better. But it also has that nice smell, which is an association with oil as well. Perfumes, oil, good things. To smell nice is a good thing. I encourage it. Um, to use oil to smell nice, it's a good thing. Oil also gives light. Not so much today, but in the past, and particularly in the Bible, Oil was associated with light. If you didn't have oil, you weren't able to burn. You weren't able to have the light. You'd have to use some wood instead. And so, of course, oil is associated with energy. Where would your car be without oil? Oil is very precious. It represents wealth. Think of the countries in the Middle East where there's pretty much sand and not much else, but they're rich. Rich with what? Rich with oil. They've got oil all over the place, and it makes them a lot of money. Um, someone from our church just went over to um, to a part there and saw the wealth of the people in those countries because of the oil that is there. Oil is a good thing. And Jesus, does he have oil? Yes, he has oil of joy. He is ruling not just with righteousness, and he's a cold sort of righteousness, no, he, he rules with joy. He's happy in his job because he loves righteousness, hates wickedness, and he, God, makes him happy about it. It says, God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. God rules his kingdom with joy. And that's so wonderful for us to remember, that God is a rejoicing God. He's a happy God. He's not a sad, glum, gloomy God who's in depression all the time about how terrible everything is going on. No, he's a happy God. He's a joyful God. So whose job is better? Angels getting about real quick with lots of firepower or Jesus, who's God, who's ruling forever with righteousness, with joy. Clearly, Jesus has the better job, and so he is far superior to angels. So what does that mean your job is to do? We've looked at angels, we've looked at Jesus. What's your job? Well, your job is to listen to angels. The messages that we have throughout the the Bible are often given by angels, and we're to listen to them. But we must remember who is boss. Who are the servants and who is boss? And we do not submit to the angels. As boss, we submit to Jesus as boss. He is God. Our job is to listen to angels, but to submit to Jesus. How do you submit to him? Well, you recognize these things that it says about him, that he is God. And don't deny that. There's a temptation to want to deny that he is God. But imagine, can you be a Christian and deny that Jesus is God? No, you can't. Because that's a horrible thing to say to someone, that they're not who they are. Imagine if you met someone and you introduced yourself and you came up, knocked on the door, said, I'm Joel Radford, and they said, no, you're not. What an insult. And that's what people say to Jesus. He, he knocks on the door says, I'm God. They say, no, you're not. 
It's disgraceful. And you're just a human. If someone denies who you are, it's not that big an insult. Imagine if you insult the living God and deny his divinity. You can't be a Christian and deny Jesus' divinity. He is God and he gets very offended, very insulted if you deny who he is. So if you want to submit to Jesus, don't just submit to him as some great being, someone who's a bit better than other people, a bit better than angels possibly. Submit to him as God. Trust that he is God. And trust that he is ruling the world. Ruling the world with righteousness. Trust that he is ruling the world because he loves to do so. Trust that he is ruling the world with joy. And trust that he is ruling the world forever. Trust in him and repent of not trusting in him in the past. Those two things always go hand in hand, repentance and faith. You trust in him, you repent of not trusting him before now and all the wrong that you have done. What else do you need to do? You need to get happy. You need to rejoice that he's on the throne. Again and again through the New Testament it says, Rejoice. It's a command. Be happy. And it's implied here in the text that you're going to be happy. What does it say? Verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Companions. Who are they? Jesus is above them, but who are they? Well, some people think angels because there's this comparison going on here. But the word companion in the Greek, is the same word used later in the book of Hebrews to represent Christians. It's clearly talking about Christians. And so what's it saying here? Jesus is above his companions. He's above his companions, above other Christians, which implies that his companions are joyful. He's above them, but they're still happy. It doesn't say he's more, he's less gloomy than his companions, meaning that they're gloomy ones, but he's got less of it. No, he's happier than them, which means that you're supposed to be happy as his companions. You're supposed to rejoice in the fact that he is God, that he is ruling with righteousness, that he is ruling forever, that he is ruling with joy. Do you rejoice in that? Do you rejoice that you have found Jesus as God? that he has revealed himself to you as such? Rejoice in him. Rejoice in these truths. These things should make you happy. You feel glum? You feel down? Turn to this passage and acknowledge who Jesus is. Can you feel unhappy knowing that God is up there on his throne ruling with righteousness? What makes you unhappy? Often things in your life that are unrighteous. Things that are uh, depressing you can be sin, can be the sin of others. But what should you remember as those things occur? It will all come out in the wash. Jesus is ruling over, overseeing everything for righteousness. Everything will be right at the end, even if you can't work it out at the moment. You're upset about something because you just can't see how God is overseeing it for righteousness. Don't let that fear enter your head. Instead, trust what the scripture says. He rules with righteousness and he does so because he loves to do so. And he will do so forever. Trust in him 
and rejoice in him for who he is. Let us speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for revealing what we have seen today about Jesus Christ, that he is God, that he is on a throne ruling, that he is ruling forever, that he is ruling with righteousness, and that he is ruling with joy. Lord, may this make us happy to know that this is true, that angels are not better than Jesus, but that he surpasses them so greatly. Lord, we confess that we often are down about things in our lives. Lord, we pray that we may find joy in knowing you and knowing that we will know you for eternity and continue to be under your righteous rule. Lord, we pray that we may want to share this with others, that we do know the God who made everything. And we know how they too can submit to him and be a part of his kingdom. May you give us opportunities to do so. And may we be able to witness for our God, the great God that he is, and be able to do so with joy. And we pray this in his name. Amen.